Welcome to the Wedding Film Academy podcast, your go-to source for learning to create stunning wedding films and run a successful business. Here's your host, Lumix Luminary and wedding filmmaker, Jordan Bunch. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wedding Film Academy podcast. We are at WPPI. Hopefully we're recording a number of episodes while we're here because that's one of the great things about being at WPPI is that we get to really dig in deep with some of the people who know this equipment best. And so today I have one of the guys who knows the Lumix lineup better than anybody, Matt Frazier, with me. So welcome, Matt. Well, thank you, Jordan. I don't know how true that is, but you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll take the I'll t- I'll take your compliment in stride. Well, you know, when I think about my level of knowledge of the system, which I think is is pretty good, and then I talk to you, I feel like you're way over my head, and I kind of have to like I have to like navigate what you're saying, have sort of process it because because you do have a much deeper level of knowledge of this. And actually what we wanted to talk about primarily today is of course the GH5S. Okay. Yeah. And I have only gotten a chance uh, today when we're recording this, I'm not sure when we're going to put it out, but at this point I've only got to film one wedding with it. So my knowledge of the camera is limited to that. Um, and I've, I've shot the wedding. I haven't yet got to edit it yet. So you've had the camera for quite a while now, right? Yeah, since uh, October. Okay, so you had a pre-production camera a long time ago. Oh, yeah. And I'm assuming you've shot quite a bit of things with it as well. Unfortunately, uh, the basically the last three or four months of my life have been nothing but this camera. So yes, I've shot quite a bit of stuff on it. Plus, um, I've worked with quite a few filmmakers who we had contracted to work with this as well. And so we, I have a pretty good understanding of what's going on with the camera. Okay, awesome. So let's just start... At kind of high level, who is this camera for? Well, I mean, I, I think it has a much more narrow focus on filmmakers, uh, cinematographers, and videographers than the GH5 did. Whereas the GH5 is much more of a hybrid camera, you know, with a 20 megapixel sensor. It says at home doing professional photography as it is professional videography. Um, with the GH5S, we've gone to a 10 megapixel sensor, 10.2 megapixel sensors. So we've cut the resolution in half. So as a photography camera, it's not quite as sharp and as much resolution as what people would expect. But that means that each of our photo sites, the, the parts of the imager that are gathering the light, are twice the size. So the low light sensitivity of this camera is dramatically better. But also its dynamic range is noticeably better. It's at least two stops better than the GH5. Two stops is huge. Well, and I think the area it shows itself is in the highlights and the way that it handles highlight clipping. It's just much more graceful in handling highlights than the GH5 was capable of. Uh, I think the the best way to describe it is the image is just richer. It it just Mm. has a richer look to the overall experience with it, which is what I appreciate probably more than anything else with the camera. Yeah. And so I just got done judging the filmmaking competition and in the, the films that we did the live judging at, everything was scored at silver distinction level or above. So the stuff that we were watching was all incredible, but we also did prejudging of every film that was submitted. And one of the things that I noticed as a big issue in a lot of films, even if they were done with some really amazing creative prowess that sort of blew me away is a lot of times um, it was there's a lot of overexposure issues because at a wedding you have 
a lot of very sunny days with a glowing bride wearing a white, very, very white dress. Um, and so that's a common issue. So you're saying that if I don't nail my exposure just perfectly, I'm close, but I'm not perfect and I overexpose her dress, you're saying I can pull some of that back? Well, in particular, if you're shooting in uh, like the log profile, you'll, you're definitely going to have more latitude to work with the file okay. when shooting in log. Um, and again, we're talking about the distinctions between the GH5 and GH5S, not necessarily sure. distinctions between GH5S and other cameras, but having access to log and then having access to a 10-bit video file really does help to provide more, more latitude in the file for you to work with. No question about it. Yeah. Awesome. So you talked about this is probably the primary feature that people are excited about, particularly wedding filmmakers, mm -hmm. is a lot of times we work in very dark situations. Uh, I think I've, I've always been one to preach lighting, but there are certain scenarios where it's not practical to light. Uh, for example, this is one of the features I was really excited about because on Saturday when I shot this last wedding, I was, you know, during the toast, I was doing my normal thing. I was lighting up the speaker. I was lighting up the bride and groom. But getting crowd reaction shots, it, it would be really obtrusive if I was having an assistant, like, carry around a light and point it at each person, and it would distract that person, and I wouldn't get a natural reaction from them, and this would just really be problematic. Whether well, their irises are not prepared for the light, so it's yes. a bunch of closing <laughs> their eyes and turning away from you. Yeah. Yes. Not, not good-looking video. Right, exactly. And so that was one of the things I was excited about, is being able to get really nice, clean-looking footage of some moments like that. They're just not practical to light. So talk to me about, I mean, you mentioned this, that we have now a 10 megapixel sensor instead of a 20 megapixel sensor. So, so effectively, each of our pixels have doubled in size, right? Yeah, 1.97 times bigger, yes. Perfect. Yeah, so um, because of that, obviously, bigger pixel means better light gathering, gathering capabilities. Yeah, and more dynamic range because of it. Yeah, okay. So that's the other piece of that. Um, talk to me about like what else happened in this camera to be able to get the magical low light that this is able to get for such a, you know, a small sensor and compared to what a lot of other people are using. So it starts with having the lower pixel density on the sensor. But the other thing is we were concentrated on creating a high sensitivity camera. And what a lot of people are not aware of is that uh, when you have a GH5, it has the five axis in body stabilization. They understand it has that. But what they don't understand is that that sensor has to move someplace and it has to stay under the circle of light that's coming from the lens, right? Otherwise you have like uh, vignetting. vignetting right. right. And so our camera's lenses cast a bigger circle than what the sensor needs. So this means that the sensor has to be able to move within that circle of, air, of light area, otherwise it would vignette. Well, we could also just put a bigger sensor in there and then use all of that light area just to give us a bigger sensor, which then means a little shallower depth of field, even bigger photo sites. So what we did is we used an oversized sensor called a multi-aspect sensor. So it's using all of the square footage we would have, or you know, square millimeters that we would have access to under that light of the lens, which gives us a larger sensor, shallower depth of field. The byproduct of this is that we had to remove the in-body stabilization system. If we kept the in-body stabilizer, then all of a sudden you'd have vignetting all the time as the sensor moves around. So uh, we had to leave the stabilization away, which is probably the biggest negative to the GH5S is that it doesn't have five axis. But the truth is, is that you get more sensitivity for it. 
our opinion was, you know, we can give you more sensitivity in the camera or we could give you stabilization in the camera. We knew you could stabilize X outside the camera. We knew that was possible. We also knew it was impossible for you to make the diodes more sensitive from outside the camera. So we took advantage of what we could, which is to give you bigger photo sites. I mean, I'm pretty good at creating those bigger diodes. I don't know if you know this about me, but it's a secret talent of mine. Does everybody hear the silence out there? That means yeah. nobody thinks that's awkward, real. Awkward turtle. Yeah. So, yeah. I, so you can you can act like you could do it, I guess. But the the point is, is that we we took care of what we could take care of, and we figure there's gimbals, there's tripods, there's Steadicam rigs, there's jibs, there's a million different ways to steady a camera, and so that's why we made the decision we did. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things is I, I was personally like i was i was like that i was i was very disappointed that didn't have the in-body image stabilization and i sort of thought about it and i was like you know what i worked my entire career without in-body image stabilization and i still have all the same tools that i need to be able to get great looking footage without in-body image stabilization it's just that i've grown to love the ability to handheld i've 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 become very spoiled um, by the GH5 and the image stabilization that's in it. Yeah, well, keep one thing in mind. There is no 5-axis in a RED. There is no 5-axis in a in an Arri Alexa. There is no 5-axis in a Vericam, and there are reasons for that. Um, one of the biggest reasons is that uh, these are magnetically coupled stabilizers, which means that if I am in an automobile or if I'm doing action sports, my momentum causes the sensor to shake uncontrollably. And that adds more shake than you can remove from it with the in-body stabilization system. We have a lot of people who are working with these professionally who are strapping them into cars or who are using them on you know, vehicles that are moving around or even for action sports. And they were shutting off the stabilization system because they were getting these weird wobbling effects. When they turned it off, they thought it would solve the problem. But there's nothing that mechanically couples that sensor. It's still floating in magnetic fields, just locked in the middle. Well it's still going to bounce around in there. And so we were getting a lot of complaints from people that it was creating a lot of movement. And they're so used to controlling movement with outside sources that it was actually a detriment to them for a lot of their work. Now, this isn't me trying to marginalize the use of an in-body stabilization system. I, I understand that for a lot of people, it's a godsend not to have to balance out a gimbal for every shot that you got to work with. And, and believe me, I understand that. And that's why the GH5 still exists in the line. But when you see the image of the GH5S... It is the closest thing you're going to find to a red dragon sensor for this price point. It is just a spectacular looking imager. <laughs> and so I, I'm not going to apologize for the lack of a stabilization system because the image looks so beautiful from this camera that it's worth sacrificing it from, from my perspective anyways. Absolutely. And it's like, you know, like you said, I already have all these other tools I'm very used to and, and, and knowledgeable and skilled in stabilizing my camera without it. And, you know, if a lot of our listeners out there are shooting with, you know, say a Canon camera that does not have in-body image stabilization. And so they're not used to that anyways. If you're, if you're sort of in transition from a system that doesn't have it anyways, you're, you're not going to ever know what you're missing. You know, I actually had a guy who's, who contacted me. He was shooting on a GH4. And he asked me, do I get a GH5 or a GH5S? I'm shooting weddings. In this case, I told him, hey, you know, you're used to not having stabilization. You're going to get a better image 
for video out of the GH5S, that might be your better option. Well, and for a lot of those folks too, and frankly for even GH5 or GH4 operators, um, I don't I don't think they really understand how much better in low light this camera is. So, yeah. like, I wouldn't really shoot a GH4 much above ISO 800 unless I was going to do a lot of cleanup in post. Sure. When I went from the GH4 to the GH5, I personally think 3200 is very close to what 800 looked like on a GH4. I mean, that's comfortably yeah. where I where I would run that. I agree. Camera. Yeah. So when I go to this camera. 12,800 looks better than ISO 3200 on a GH5. And that's that's no hyperbole. It is crazy how good 12,008 looks. 25,006 looks a little... It's 25,006 The colors crazy. start to suffer, I think, when you get to 25,006. But I have never been in a situation where I would need to ever go that high at a wedding. Right. And, and 12,008 is ridiculously high for for low light shooting and the image looks stunning at 12,008 and that's where I think you're getting that that benefit of having no in-body stabilization is that you can just go to these crazy high ISOs now and it's going to save you a lot of money in the long run in having to bring in lighting for situations where you maybe didn't want to have to bring it in before so yeah again I think um, just that ability to have that extra flexibility when you need it is super helpful and I'm never going to stop being an advocate for lighting your scenes because a low light camera is not a replacement for light because it's it's you use light to shape your image you know Correct. you're shaping your subject you're creating separation from your subject and your background you're creating a mood to your image whether it's beauty light that's nice and soft whether it's a dramatic hard light you're using light to shape so much of your image and the story that you're trying to tell. But there are situations where you're just trying to document something that's going on and uh, lighting the situation with whatever the light is in the room is actually the right decision because you're simply trying to document what's happening there. But here's the distinction. So I can now take those little tiny Lytra lights that are like 70 bucks, right? Right, yeah. And I can throw a scrim. I can throw a scrim right in front of that if I want to throw a soft light up. And now I can go ahead and push that to 6400, or a little bit higher than 6400. And now I'm only having to bring little tiny Luma Cube or Lytra lights. And now I'm able to then either choose to spot those if I want to create, you know, hot areas in the scene to, you know, create drama, or I can soft, you know, I can soften them by just throwing a scrim up. And I'm not having to bring in much larger lighting solutions. So it's not about getting rid of lighting, but it sure as heck is about bringing a lot less of it with me when I go on my job. I think that's a totally fair point. The fact that you can shoot at those higher ISOs because you don't have to have as many lumens coming in with whatever you're actually using. Yeah. You're using one of those Luma Cubes? I've been very interested in one. I use the Lytra versions. I don't use the Luma Cube ones. Yeah, yeah. I'm very interested. I'm very passionate about the Lytras, actually. I'm shockingly passionate. I have no idea. Okay, I got to find them. I don't don't get any money from them or anything. It's just (laughs) they they have a really cool gel kit solution for them, which I think is totally awesome. Um, You got to be able to control the color. And the gel kit's amazing. So I I stacked like five gels on one with their diffuser uh, with a woman just doing painting on on a canvas. 
And then we had like aliens in the background and we were doing ISO ramps to show people what you could do. And it just looked like you were under candlelight when I had that little elytra light right above it. It was really cool. So I'm a big fan of elytras. If you like the Lumi cubes out there, I'm sure they're perfectly fine. I, <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm partial to elytra ones. Cool. Okay. Talk to me about this. So when we think of low light cameras or cameras that, that work good in any situation, you know, whether, whether we have good light, whether we have bad light, mm-hmm. um, I think most of our listeners are going to go in their head straight to the Sony a7S Mark II. Okay. Talk to me about kind of like com- compare why someone would choose and we're going to let you be unbiased. You're really going to let you be biased, right? Because you've got Lumix on your shirt. Um, so tell me, sell me, why would I choose a GH5S over a A7S II if I'm in a wedding filmmaker? Okay, so we can obviously start with just some basics. Like the battery life is two to three times longer on a GH5S than it will be on a A7S Mark II. There is a reason why they package the camera with two batteries in the box. Um, they do that. <laughs> yeah, it, it literally ships with two, two it batteries. It ship with itself. So um, that, that would be one benefit. You know, you don't have a 29-minute and 59-second stop point on a GH5S. If you can get to 29 minutes and 59 seconds, because it, it might overheat. You're in Texas, and I just dropped a camera on the floor. Um, you're in Texas. But it's a robust camera. Yeah. So you you, you, you get heat. Um, might be a challenge. So those are probably the primary sort of well-known things out there about sure. the camera. But something that's probably lesser known that I want to make sure people are aware of uh, if you're a log shooter, so if you shoot S-Log2 or S-Log3, which I know, Jordan, that's not that's not your work. But but I know wedding filmmakers who do. Yeah. So if you're a log shooter, the Sony A7S will only allow you to shoot below, will only let you shoot to ISO 3200. And that's if you're in log or if you're in their Rec. 709 color profile. So you can't shoot below 3200? 1600. You can't 1600. shoot below 1600 um, on the A7S Mark II. And if you shoot in slow-mo, you can't shoot below 3,200 ISO. Wow. So that is your starting point. So I hope you like neutral dead sea filters because <laughs> you're going to be using a lot of them. Um, the GH5S has what's called dual native ISO function, which uh, this is really incredibly nerdy. The fact is when we design a sensor, there's one point, a sweet spot, where it's going to give you the maximum dynamic range with the lowest amount of noise. And so we put a circuit at that point, and then that circuit creates the native ISO. So like you know, if you had an old 5D Mark II, it was like ISO 320 was its native point. The A7S, it's native point 1600. That's its native point. What we've done is we have two native points now. You have a circuit at 400, which is really 800 in log. And then you have a separate circuit that's set at uh, 2500, which is actually 5000 in log. So you have a, a native 5000 in log and you have a native 800 log. And what this means is that I can then push this down to 320 and have darn near the same dynamic range as I would at 800. And then once I start pushing up above 800, once I get to 5,000, it then switches to the new circuit, noise drops again, and it almost resets to what it looked like at 800 again. So now that gives me much more latitude to work with with ISO. This effectively allows me now to shoot down to 320 if I'm in a challenging lighting condition, or I can go ahead and push it and log up to you know uh, 25,600 ISO as the peak in log. So you've got a tremendous amount of latitude to work with there. And you gotta ask yourself, how often do you shoot in lighting conditions that require 25,600? 
I, I don't know that I've ever, ever done that. Okay. How often do you shoot in lighting conditions that require ISO 320? Every single time I shoot. Okay. So the A7S, I feel, is a good low-light camera. The GH5S is a good all-light camera because it has this much work that it can do with the sensor, with the dual-native system. That's really fascinating. But if you think also I'm lying, I would highly thought. recommend you go out and try the A7S Mark II and see if I'm telling the truth or not. Now, if you don't, if you like to use baked-in profiles, yeah, you can go ahead and push it down to ISO 80 and you know compress the living bejesus out of the dynamic range if you want to, and and you can do that with an A7S Mark II, and you can do the same with us. But it's for log when you want the maximum dynamic range and latitude of that sensor. That's where you really get stuck at 1600. Yeah, I think that's something really interesting, something that I haven't heard other people talk about. And I think primarily because there's, there are a lot of log shooters out there for sure. I mean, that's one of the great things is actually we put, they put log into this camera built in, right? You don't have to pay the extra 100 bucks this time. That's correct. Yeah. So, so if you are shooting log um, so that you can get that extra dynamic range out, which is super helpful for weddings, um, and you're just one of those people who's just going to, you know, you've got your custom light that you like and you're going to throw that on top of it to get the look that you want, then the ability to be able to shoot that at 320 ISO rather than putting ND32 on your lens. <laughs> or 64, or, yeah. Or 64, right. Um, to having to stack even, you know, maybe having to stack multiple ND filters on top of your sensor um, because even if you're going to crank your shutter high enough, you probably still are going to have to use an ND if you're shooting outdoors on a bright sunny day. Well, I mean, I guess you could go to a 6,000th of a second shutter speed, but that's really going to change the, the, the texture of what you're shooting. It's going to look very Even so, there's situations, video. there's still even situations where even if you did that, I think at 1600 ISO, you're still not yeah. you're still exposed properly. Well, and I think one other thing to consider, so I see a lot of people who... So I shoot in a hybrid design where they do um, a baked-in profile for all the interior stuff. But when they get outside where there's a lot less control over what they're shooting, where there's more shadows they have to deal with, they kind of switch to log for exterior and they do less log for interior. And it's a way for them to get more dynamic range in the areas they really need it, which is exteriors. And then on the interior, they have kind of a finished look. So they have less color correcting they have to do in post. So in that kind of a shooting scenario, well... The 1600 becomes a real big challenge for you when you go outdoors. So, again, I don't want to make too big a deal of this. It's not the only thing that makes this a great camera for somebody like that. Um, but I think it's a big one to consider. You know, I've also, if you've shot an A7S, you, you know it's a crop or a full frame. And if you shoot it in full frame, it's an interesting rolling shutter look to it when you start panning the camera around. And so a lot of people just end up cropping in to the Super 35 area to then get less rolling shutter but then you lose 4K when you do that. So that's another differentiator. You know, they have a 120 hertz slow-mo function. The GH5S has a 240 hertz slow-mo function. So that's twice the slow-mo that they're capable of. And, you know, with their camera, you get 120 or you get nothing. So what if you want to do a 48 frame? So you just have exactly a two times slow-mo for your 24 final render. Well, you have access to 48 and you have access to 96. You have access to 120. You have access to 90. You know, 180, you have virtually access to almost anything that you would need for shutter speed, or for, I'm sorry, for frame rate in the camera. So it gives you a lot more options for slow-mo. And then, you know, Jordan, I know you deploy multiple cameras on site. Sure. Um, you know, time code is valuable on a GH5, 
as long as you take the time to set them all by hand and as long as you don't mind a few frames of difference between the cameras because you're doing it by hand. Um, the GH5S, where the PC port is that you'd usually use for syncing flashes, uh, it does double duty as a time code sync. So it comes with a little cord that hooks right in and then you can take one GH5S and you can send its time code into another one just by connecting the two together and then you can just jam them so that they keep the same time or you could use a really, really super accurate time code generator, um, like the tentacle products. You take one tentacle piece and you have a, it has a master clock. It can then wirelessly transmit that, and then you can put tentacles on each of your cameras, hook them into the time code in, and you can have you know 50, 60 cameras all on time code, and they would be perfectly time synced. So you know, no more clapboard to sync or any of that. It'll be very, very accurate if you do it that way. Yeah, super cool. If you're going to be doing, um, you know, a long, a long wedding shoot, you know, the the ceremony. If you're going to be doing, you know, a lot of us that do weddings, we also do corporate events, things right. like that. You know, we just did a corporate event uh, a couple weeks ago where we had uh, multiple cameras going and it was rolling all day long. I mean, you know, we were, um, we would they would take a ten minute break to go to the bathroom and come back and then they're at it again for another two hours. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so not only having the feature of unlimited record time, um, and definitely cause we can hot swap the cards and the battery through the battery grip. Um, but also having a feature like that would be really cool when we come to edit. Well, especially uh, with hot swapping cards. If you had to change cards midway, having that time code become embedded on that secondary card means that it's picking up at two hours and 15 seconds and six frames when you put that second card in there. And that means it's going to throw that new card on the timeline exactly at that point. So you're going to have all these fragmented, you have fragmented files at this point, but those fragmented files are going to just populate perfectly in sync when you import them. So it'll make my editor happy. Yeah, I, I would I would hope so. I, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people who love just putting out a set of headphones and trying to sync it all up and getting it all to match the way they want it to. I'm not one of those people, so... <laughs> Yeah, that's not my preferred pastime, I'll say. Is running your business taking away from the time that you have to make better wedding films? Do you feel disorganized? What happens when a hot lead goes cold after your first email response? Do you have a system in place to stay in contact with them? Do you find yourself asking, where was that bride's phone number again? And have they paid their invoice or not? Which package do they get and what are their deliverables? How organized are your financial records when it comes to tax time? Wouldn't it be awesome if you could afford forty dollars or $50,000 to pay someone to take care of all this extra stuff for you? I've got an idea. How about you sign up for 17 Hats and pay just $300 a year to let their amazing online software take care of all of this for you? Before I got 17 Hats, I was buried in a sea of unorganized emails, spreadsheets, bank statements, receipts, sticky notes, Google Docs, and more. I was letting hot leads go cold because I couldn't remember who to stay in contact with. I was spending weeks trying to get my tax records organized for my accountant. It was awful. And now I pay 17 hats, just $300 a year, and they do all of that for me. It's like having a full-time assistant working around the clock on your business, making sure that everything is organized, invoices are paid on time, and making you look like a real pro to your clients. And now 17 hats is giving you an amazing offer. When you use the link at the top of our website, WeddingFilmAcademy.org, you'll get 15% off the list price, and it's a great way for you to help keep us making great content each week for you. If you want to learn more about 17 Hats, 
go back in the archives and listen to the podcast that we did with them. We actually got to chat with the CEO and one of the VPs of 17 Hats for an hour. So definitely go back and listen to that podcast as well if you want to learn more. Thanks a ton. Let's get back to the show. Awesome. One of the things that I had you show me earlier was y'all had this awesome uh, screen up on the wall here at the booth. And you're showing me this film that y'all had produced that was done in HDR. Tell me about the HDR feature of the GH5S. Yeah, so we actually contracted for three films. Two of them are out now. We'll have a third one that'll be 60 frames uh, native that'll be HDR as well. So um, the GH5 is and GH5S are capable of 10-bit video. And our current television standard... God, this gets so nerdy, dude. It is unbelievable. <laughs> so... Put your propellers on, those of you who really care. The tell me, tell me, like why a why a wedding shooter would be interested in this? Well, your clients are big ballers, so they all have like money to burn. So they all have like super high end 4K television sets with this new feature called HDR. So let's talk about what HDR really means to a consumer first. Yeah, um, our old television standard the high definition one was designed to only have what's called a hundred nits of light output. It's the difference between black and white. Zero nits would be no light. hundred nits would be bright light. So if you're a sports fan, you ever watch a football game? I don't think they watch football in Texas, but um, um. <laughs> obviously I'm just joking. <laughs> so even like high school stadiums in, in Texas have like big jumbotrons, right? Yep. So when you watch a football game, if they set the exposure so that when the guy's wearing a helmet, you can see their eyes, you can see their face. You ever notice that the the scoreboard in the background is totally overblown in the shot? Mm, right. Well, that's because we only have 100 nits of latitude to work with. So everything has to be clipped off above 100 nits. So what happens is when we set the exposure so that I can see people's faces, all of a sudden I'm overblowing the backgrounds. And that's why you're putting key lights and all this stuff in when you shoot. Especially when you're shooting like sunset. Yeah. Right? So... Now, now let's not go crazy. This isn't going to solve a sunset problem. Well, I mean, but, it's, 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 that, it's that kind of scenario. Right. But in the, in the scenario I'm painting now, if you could imagine a new television standard that can go to a thousand nits, it has 10 times more highlight information available to it. So I can now expose hotter for the subject. And then I've got all that extra latitude above there. So I can still keep that background properly exposed. That's what HDR does, is it gives us 10 times more latitude in our highlight information. And so by doing this, when we master a file and then we play it on a television set, now I can really be aggressive with my grade and still have really good highlight information available to me. It's kind of like when you shoot log and then you've you've shot it perfectly and then you've conformed it. And then you're like, "Ah, I just wish I could get those specular highlights in the background to just really pop because in real life, those little Christmas lights we had set up in the back were much brighter than what I'm able to render today. I can make those things just pop now because I've got all this extra highlight information available to me. So that's one benefit to it. But the second benefit, as far as I'm concerned, is that, uh, and frankly, this is really the primary benefit for me, YouTube sucks. The video quality, once it's compressed and delivered in there, um, you know, antiquated codecs oftentimes create a look that's just very different from what my original vision was when I saw it in my editing day, right? Well, when you upload HDR content to YouTube, you get access to something called VP9.2, which is like this crazy codec that if you have, if you have a DaVinci Resolve, you can encode in VP9 
and it'll take like 40, a 40 second clip takes two, about took me 20 hours to render on my MacBook Pro. <laughs> so, and I'm not kidding, 40 seconds took 20 hours to render. That's the kind of compression codec that, that they're using now. When you deliver 10 bit video in HDR, they'll deliver VP 9.2 and it is like 30 megabit per second delivered when I measure it at home. That's Blu-ray levels of data rate. It looks like Blu-ray ultra high definition delivered from YouTube. So I want to always have a master file available on YouTube. So when people say, well, your file did this, or I saw this little bit of banding, or I saw this little bit of noise in the background, or this artifacting, was that in the camera or not? I can say, look, go get an iPad Pro and view it on your iPad Pro and tell me how it looks on there because the iPad Pro will play HDR content. It gives me a master file that looks as good as what I saw when I edited the file. And it delivers it as 10-bit through YouTube. It's stunning. YouTube HDR looks amazing. Awesome. So if you're still with us through that, I think you will have some exciting stuff to use. If you, if you can, like, like he said, we had to keep our propellers on. But I think that um, being able to deliver content that really blows people away compared to what they're used to seeing on YouTube is just a, another way to continue to set yourself apart from what everybody else is doing. And, and I think that is so much of the challenge uh, for everyone who's running a business is, is figuring out ways to make your stuff stand apart from everyone else's. And if everyone else is used to seeing a codec that makes their films look worse than what they're their intended purpose, their intended uh, vision was, then by having access to this new codec on YouTube, um, the clients are going to be able to see that difference, assuming they're watching on a decent screen, right? Right. And it'll down convert for you. So for non-HDR television, it delivers a non-HDR experience. It sure. still looks really good. Right. But you're starting with the architecture of their best codec. So you get the best looking results from it. And that's, I, I don't know how many, you know, wedding videographers deliver through YouTube, but I, I don't imagine a lot of your clients would there's, rather... There's, it's, it's a growing community for sure. Yeah. Yeah, because because there are more eyes on YouTube than there are on Vimeo. It's easier for the bride to share her her wedding through yep. YouTube than it is to, hey, let's mail you a disc out. Why don't you guys go ahead and uh, check it out on disc? So, yeah. man, that was dorky, wasn't it? That was like... You, <laughs> you had me the whole time, though. I was just like... <laughs> Jordan, when are we going to try this on a wedding? <laughs> well, what's really cool is you could actually record in HLG, which is a codec that we incorporate in the camera. And that is effectively HDR without having to do any color corrections in post. So if you want to play with it, you can record in HLG. And you're a Final Cut user, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. So Final Cut 10.4 has added tools now for HDR. And it, they're super easy to use. Awesome. So you can tell it, I've ingested HDR. It'll give you the proper wave, you know, your RGB color parade when you're, when you're setting your, your brightness and everything. Well, it'll show you how much brightness you have in the file. You'll see that the HLG gets you about 400 nits of light output. You'll get more dynamic range from it. The best part is you don't have to do any color correction. It just looks gorgeous. Then you just master it right out and then you just send it right to YouTube and it's done. It, it I'm edits. All about, I'm all about limiting that part of the workflow. That's why I love Cinelike V. That's kind of like my go-to profile because it gives me the skin tones that I'm looking for. It gives me the colors. And it's contrasty. Um, that I'm looking for. It is contrasty, which I like a contrasty image. Um, and recently I've had a number of people, I think 
when we talk about different camera systems, every camera system sort of excels at one thing or another, right? And one of the, the arguments I hear again and again and again from Canon shooters is, is my Canon colors. I got to have my Canon colors. And that's the main reason I wouldn't consider something else, even though most of them are well aware that for, for video, there are a lot of other options out there that could benefit them. Um, I'll say in a very diplomatic way, right? Um, but I've had a number of Canon shooters recently mistake my Cinelike V profile, the, the films that I'm producing, for Canon colors. Um, and so I think you're going to see a much closer look to that, which I will say, like, Canon colors look beautiful. Um, and I think I'm getting something that... Um, gives me that look from the skin tones that we're really looking for. And when we talk about wedding films, one of our primary jobs is to make the bride look good. And not the group, you know, I mean, the groom, it's, it's, it's an afterthought, really. <laughs> but, but it is, it's just to make them look good. And so a huge part of that is making their skin look a good color. Yeah. Um, the color, you know, that it looks so. Yeah, they want warm. They want rich. They want it to look like they, like they envision themselves to look like. Absolutely. I've never once heard a groom say, "You know what? You really crushed the blacks on that lapel. I can't see the lapel <laughs> from my jacket, but I can promise you this: if they don't see the beadwork on that dress, you're gonna hear about it." Yeah, so. absolutely. And one of the other things we talk when we talk about this HDR thing is, I, and I've always appreciated this about Lumix. That's one of the reasons I switched to the GH4 in the first place is because nobody else was doing 4K at the time is it's whatever we're doing now in these cameras is sort of future-proofing things. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about HDR, not everybody has an HDR TV, but if you go look at Best Buy, at Walmart, at wherever, most of the 4K TVs that you see out there are HDR. So that's definitely becoming the new standard. It's not it's not the unreachable you know, $10,000 TV anymore. It's a part of our new television standard. We just approved a new television standard. HDR is a part of the new standard. So. Yeah. For broadcast over the air, you know, those old rabbit ears and those antennas that all the hipsters now use so they don't have to have cable anymore? Well, <laughs> um, that HDR is a part of the new standard for that. So HDR is a real thing that's going to be a part of the future. And I think what's cool is you can work within an HDR workflow and you can kick out the standard dynamic range file and deliver that as a deliverable to your customer today. And then, you know, if you keep good records of your clients, you can flag a 10-year anniversary or a five-year anniversary and go back to them and say, hey, I know it's your 10th anniversary. The footage we shot is mastered in HDR. If you have an HDR TV, we can kick out an extra master. And you can either charge for that service or you can use it as, you know, a value add. You know, it's that so people remember who you were. God, you remember my wedding videographer? He contacted me the other day and sent me an updated version of my video. <laughs> and it looked stunning. It looked way better than the previous version. Mm. You got to use this guy. So you can choose to either use it to make additional revenue or you can use it as a way to help people remember that you're still a wedding videographer. Yeah. And either way, it's a big benefit for you. And frankly, it took you no extra time because you mastered an HDR at the, on the front side. Yeah. Awesome. So, um, Anything else you want to say about the GH5S? Because I have a couple of things I want to talk about. I think we've gone ad nauseum. I think we've covered okay. everything you could possibly cover on the yeah. camera. Okay. So I, th I think people, as long as people understand its strengths and the one real weakness is the no IBIS, I think I'm good. Yeah. Awesome. So there's um, there's some new glass in the lineup now. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me what we have going on. 
So we launched a 50 to 200 at the show. Um, it's F28 at the wide angle. It's F4 at the telephoto end. Um, that's going to replace my 35 to 100. I, I know that this is hard for people to understand or imagine, but I don't covet constant aperture lenses for video. I know that everybody seems to think it's the only way to go. The irises that we put in our lenses are continuously variable. And I've shown you demos where I can literally walk the camera from indoor to outdoor and the iris will continuously adjust for me and it gives me like a super smooth transition. So if I have to do zooming, the iris in that 50 to 200 is so smooth, you'll never see it change. Um, so for me, that'll replace my 35 to 100. Uh, mm. I, it's a compact lens for how big it is, or for how long the focal length is. And I would really love to have that 400 millimeter for a lot of, you know, for a lot of what I do. So for, I'm Taylor sorry. was asking me to buy that earlier. So yeah, it's a pretty <laughs> sweet lens and you were selling it really well. So I'm a, I'm a fan of that lens. I, I and that's like a branded. Yeah. That's a Leica lens. It's and then you that same color profile and everything that I'm used to with my Noctocron and my well, 12 mil. And you can actually use the teleconverters on it too. So you can put the one four teleconverter on it or you can put a two teleconverter on it. So hmm. it becomes an 800 millimeter equivalent. Well, yeah, it goes from 200 to 400, which is an 800 equivalent. So right. yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beast. It's a pretty cool camera, a pretty cool lens and it's really compact. And then we have the 200 millimeter F2.8, um, available as well and that one comes with the one four teleconverter oh, package together yeah, that's nice. so it's three grand um but it gives you oh sorry the other lens is uh seventeen hundred dollars okay so um at three grand you get a one four teleconverter you get f2 a glass and you get f2 a glass at a 400 millimeter equivalency um, i know people will talk about depth of field equivalencies but once we get to 400 millimeter it kind of becomes the opposite it actually becomes problematic to have f2.8 on a yeah. full frame camera because it's so shallow especially if you're doing sports photography you know you're really fighting the you're really fighting that depth of field you know, trust me it that 200 millimeter f2.8 it obliterates a background so you're yeah. not, you, you're, you're going to be able to obliterate backgrounds with it still i i'm a big fan of it and it, it is without question the sharpest lens we've ever produced really yeah it makes sharper the, than the noctocron it makes the noctocron look soft in comparison it's really sharp okay that's not possible yeah the noctocron is sharp I, i'm that's a little bit of hyperbole but the, the truth is is that we were all shocked at how sharp this lens is really? oh yeah it is incredibly sharp awesome yeah i can imagine using that 200 millimeter lens especially like um if whether i'm at like an outdoor ceremony where i just have infinite room and i can get back really far and then put it uh, my camera up way high on a tripod so that I won't have an issue with a photographer who may like to get really close in the center aisle because I'm going to have that super tight shot at a high angle mm -hmm. and be able to get that tight shot that just has sort of a chest up from the three people there, the the bride, the groom, and the, um, and the officiant, as well as if I'm in a big Catholic church, um, you know, being able to get that close in a Catholic church where they have banished you to the back or to the balcony um, would be really killer to be able to still have a basically, you know, a 400 millimeter focal length. Um, also, one of the things I've been doing a lot lately is using the, um, the teleconverter that's built into the GH5 and the GH5S. Yeah. How, tell me how much extra focal length that's getting. Do we know? It, we don't really quote it. Okay. So uh, GH5S is going to be minimal. Um, because you're starting only 4096 a pixel width. 
so you can only really use it to crop into like 1080. It won't do it as a 4K. So, okay. Um, in that, that but if you're talking with the GH5, yeah, GH5 a lot more. is a quite a bit of a crop. I mean, it's almost I think a two crop once you get down to 1080. It's a pretty, it's a pretty aggressive. With 1080, crop. yeah, but even with 4K, because I'm shooting everything in 4K. Yeah, I want to say it's about a 1.4, yeah. roughly. Which is pretty awesome because it turns my 42 and a half into, you know, it's, I mean, it's effectively an 85 and that turns into like, what, 120 or somewhere in that range, yeah. 110. Well, and I think the long focal length, like the 400s or the 200 equivalents, what's cool with them is that they can, for like, um, for like ceremonial or, or for like event things where it's maybe the groom giving the comedic speech about, well, not the groom, but the best man giving me a speech about the groom. Or if you're at a graduation and you're at the commencement of the graduation and you're having to do public speakers, I like to do stuff like that uh, at a very different frame rate. So I like to cut that stuff in at like 60 frame um, to create a different texture to it. I, I like that juxtaposition of having that video look where it looks like you were on a long zoom lens on a video camera shooting that stuff to then cut in with all the 24 kind of cinematic look stuff because it gives you a little bit of room to make mistakes and are acceptable mistakes because it looks more like just a video shot on a, like a regular video camera. So I enjoy that kind of look. And when you have that extra compression, it really begins to look a lot like more like a, well, more like an interview of, you know, post a football game or something like that. Um, I really enjoy that kind of look to, to those parts of a ceremony. So I think there's a lot of, um, I mean, obviously these things are just to taste, you know, but I, I do see a lot of, even with like, for example, like Peter McKinnon, one of the more popular YouTubers on the planet, he does a lot of mixing up frame rates. And one of the things he'll do is he's doing interview style and, you know, he's probably shooting at 24 or 30 and then he switches to his little B-roll scenes. And not only does he choose a different frame rate, like, you know, 120, um, but he'll also completely change the aspect ratio. So there's something to be said for the ability to, to dramatically change things as big as frame rate throughout um, throughout your film to sort of match to your taste. Well, you know? and there are examples of it in cinema. So, um, you know, if, if you ever saw Grand Budapest Hotel... Love um, that movie. Yeah. Such a good movie. Yeah, that's a solid C minus one. I'm joking. <laughs> it's a fantastic movie. And terrible director. Um, so that Shun. that movie was um, shot in three aspect ratios. So all of the 1930s footage was in a four by three aspect ratio because in the 1930s that's what movies were, were produced in was four by three, and then all of the 60s era stuff was done in 239 uh, Cinemascope because that was what was popular at the time. And then the 80s stuff was done at a 185, you know, traditional high definition aspect ratio because that was what was in vogue at the time in cinema. So that whole changing in aspect ratio makes a lot of sense. Uh, we also see examples of uh, like any given Sunday or any other sports related movie where they want to come out of the story and make it news coverage of the story. So you have the in-game footage, which is all 24 and very cinematically shot, but then you have the news coverage of the sporting event, and that's being cut at 59.94 to give it that video structure and look to it. And so there's lots of use of it. It's just a question of how creative you want to be with what you're doing. Um, but as long as you cut it on a 59.94 timeline, um, sorry, that's very dorky. 
make a mm-hmm. make a 60p timeline and bring your 24p content into that um you can you can really make a very textured interesting look to what you do so yeah. cool well, i think this has been a fantastic interview I've, I've learned a lot about what this new camera that i have can do and so i'm excited for that i'm excited to kind of dig deeper in um, and explore some of these things we've been talking about. So hopefully our listeners have found the same thing. If you're on the fence about the GH5S, hopefully this is kind of giving you the information that you need to be able to make the decision that's best for you. So thanks again, Matt. This is really helpful. Thank you. And I'm waiting for your uh, your beach bonfire lit wedding video for the GH5S. So we can, yeah, so uh, if, if you want to know what he's talking about there, check out the video. What's, what's the video called? The uh, The bonfire? The hdr piece i was totally joking that was but, not what but it was. There, there was a bonfire i was saying i want you to do a beach bonfire oh, wedding okay but yeah the the piece in question is called horizons and okay. it was shot by mystery box so check out horizons though because that will show you what he's talking about with the hdr um the crazy dynamic range he's able to get there yeah we'll we'll definitely make a bonfire at the next wedding for you there you go yeah the wedding film academy podcast is produced by taylor juarez if you found this episode helpful, be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show and help us out by leaving a five-star review on iTunes. And when you're done, head on over to WeddingFilmAcademy.org to chat with our other wedding filmmakers like yourself in the comments section. Until next time, keep making movie magic. <laughs>